All right, thank you very much. Uh, this study is a first phase of some continuing research that I'll be working on this year and into the future. And the research is on common military identity and state socialization. And what I'm going to be presenting today is just a very small slice of that. And then towards the end of the presentation, I'll be discussing uh, some of my ideas for where I'd like to go in the future, both uh, some specific ideas for my year at Mershon and then some possibilities uh, beyond that. This particular study uses statistical modeling to test the long-term influence of U.S. military-to-military contacts on the democratic or authoritarian nature of a state's political institutions. And although we have anecdotal accounts and small and qualitative studies that might provide information on specific schools, uh, you might have read things about the School of the Americas in particular, which seems to come up when we talk about this topic. Um, in any case, there has been no systematic imperial empirical examination of the long-term influence of, of the U.S. military to military contacts. This is the overview of my presentation for today. First, I'd like to start out with a little background on myself and where I come into this, my personal interest in this particular topic, uh, and then look at the research question, uh, I think this uh, study has relevance uh, both methodologically, theoretically, and practically for U.S. policy. We'll talk a little bit about that. Then go into an uh, overview of theory of state socialization and where my ideas fit into this theoretical framework. And then the methodology. And once again, it is statistical analysis using Cox proportional hazard models. I'll talk a bit about the modeling setup and my data set. Uh, if you've had a chance uh, to look at the paper, it's in much more depth there. I'm really not going to talk about the specific models themselves or the numbers, just kind of give you an overview of what I did and what the results are. Uh, going on to the results then. And then finally, some conclusions and policy implications. Uh, studies on military organizations and state socialization at least from my perspective, have for the most part focused on material instrumental aspects. And by that, I mean behavior, um, altering behavior through war, coercion, deterrence, negotiation, and like strategic interactions, while domestic structures remain intact. And we're reminded perhaps of Waltz's rationalist uh, conceptualization uh, where he talks about socialization limiting and molding behavior where the internal characteristics of the state itself or its identity uh, remains intact. Um, also within conceptualizations, I think quite frequently we see military organizations as unitary actors. And so three points I'd like to just uh, briefly uh, describe from my personal experience illustrating how I think of the U.S. military. So first, sometimes I read, we read, uh, in the press or in academic studies, such things as the military thinks that, the military believes this, the military values that. I'm often left to wonder, what military are we talking about? And I think we're all very familiar that the U.S. military is a very large organization, about um, 1.5 million people. And so I'm left to wonder, what military? Are we talking about those officers in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C.? Are those out at the operational commands? Are we talking about what the Air Force values or what the Marine Corps values? Are we talking about the staffers whose primary function is to organize, train, and equip our military forces? Or are we talking about the war fighters who make our operational plans and then execute them? Are we talking about the officers or the enlisted, the generals or the sergeants? 
the active duty, the reserves. The reserves on active duty are the National Guard. And then in amongst all this melange, this complexity of military personnel, I think we also have to include the Department of Defense civilians. So my first point is um, that the military uh, is a very complex social uh, structure as well as being, uh, you can consider it as a unitary actor. A second from my personal experience is working with uh, international counterparts, uh, my military counterparts, uh, first in Korea. Um, when I was assigned there, I worked on a daily basis with my Korean counterpart. And what this means for me is sitting across at a table no wider than what you're having lunch at uh, with my Korean counterpart 10 hours a day, uh, every, every work day. And this was in a fully integrated intelligence analysis center. And then my second experience being working with a Central Command Headquarters forward during Operational Desert Storm. And in this, uh, the U.S. military units that I was in were fully integrated within the Ministry of Defense and Aviation uh, in the complex that they have, the Saudi Ministry of Defense and Aviation in Riyadh. And so not only being embedded in the, uh, the Saudi's uh, military structure or military at least uh, structure in the physical sense, the buildings and all, but also working on a daily basis with coalition partners. And then the third point from my personal experience um, was having been, as Rick noted, both a student and uh, recently an instructor at the Air Force's Command and Staff College down in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, a brief history about the uh, staff colleges and the war colleges. These are the U.S. premier military education institutes. Uh, it's a special selection process for military officers of the United States to attend these schools, and only approximately 10% do. It's a special selection board um, where they're offered the opportunity to attend. And because it is a special selection process, these are the officers thought most likely to be funneled up into the higher ranks of colonel and general officer. Uh, the staff and war colleges exist in the United States both at the national level and within this, each of the services and each have a significant number of foreign military officers who attend the courses every year. And just as an illustration, at the Air Force uh, Command and Staff College, uh, where I recently came from, the student body is, has approximately 600 members, and this consists of approximately 80 international officers, so over 10% of the student body, from approximately 60 different countries, of course varying from year to year. And then the student body itself for daily interactions is broken down into seminar groups. And each seminar group has 14 members, of which two are international officers. And it's broken down such that the international officers generally come from different regions of the world. So the Saudi officer would not probably be put in a seminar group with the Kuwaiti officer, for example, or the same for uh, our allies from Europe. Uh, during my student experience, I was a student there in 1999, and I still keep in contact with the two international officers that were in my seminar group. In fact, I just got a message this morning uh, from one of them, my friend in Portugal. Uh, so kind of illustrating that we do keep in contact with each other. This might not necessarily be a, a transitory experience. And then the last two years, I was an instructor at the uh, staff college, and I personally taught students from Saudi Arabia, UAE, Hungary, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Germany, Venezuela, Australia, and a, and a few other countries. 
And so this leaves me to wonder, when I would stand up in front of the classroom, what is the influence of this educational process on these military officers? Because I know, at least from my experience of being stationed in both Korea and Saudi Arabia, that my understanding and my ideas about the culture, about these states, has been altered a little bit by my personal experience. So what is the experience for these other military officers who come to the United States and interact with the U.S. military? Uh, So hence my interest in military organizations as dynamic social structures. And in this study, I focus on this international dynamic, the personal interaction on a regular basis across state borders. Uh, In fact, person-to-person contacts have been included in the national security strategies of the United States. And these strategies, as you're probably well aware, have consistently sought to enlarge the community of democratic states and promote democratic institutions, practices, and beliefs as one one of their core objectives. And at least during the Clinton era, the U.S. government and the U.S. military recognized the importance of military organizations as social networks of professionals sharing a common identity uh, as evidenced by emphasis placed on military engagement as one key strategy uh, for the U.S. military in order to enhance U.S. national security. Uh, One example from U.S. military doctrine I've just thrown up uh, here on the slide is the quote from the National Military Strategy, emphasizing uh, the importance of military engagement activities such as information sharing and building constructive relationships uh, within U.S. military doctrine. So when I think of about military contacts and their relationship with U.S. military strategy, I'm reminded of an observation by Alex Went uh, from his 2001 article Uh, that, quote, even if states choose rationally, this may be less interesting than the underlying structures that make certain choices rational in the first place. Uh, When we think of how underlying structures of states are constituted and how they might be reconstituted, military organizations seem one likely channel. A state's military has domestic political influence as well as operating internationally, coming into contact both on a person-to-person basis and on an organizational level with the militaries of other states. So hence we come to my research question that I'm exploring. Uh, To what extent are U.S. military-to-military contacts associated with either liberal or authoritarian trends? And I did mention that this is, I'm taking a very narrow cut at it in this paper and looking at uh, liberal or authoritarian trends defined by a state's political institutions, recognizing that there are other characterizations of that. And I'll talk about that when I come to my ongoing uh, ideas for further research. Uh, This study has relevance, I think, both methodologically, theoretically, and practically. Uh, Empirically, my research design uh, distinguishes mechanisms of state socialization that can be both conceptually identified and operationally separated as coercive capabilities or material instrumentally based and constructivist, meaning ideationally based, as well as an outcome. And this is the political identity of the engaged states that can be both observed and measured. Uh, Theoretically, this study contributes to our understanding in a number of ways. Uh, It provides an empirical analysis of one of the fundamental claims uh, 
in the study of security communities from Deutsch to uh, Adler and Barnett that over time close social interactions promote patterns of trust in the convergence of identities. Uh, it elaborates one process whereby states come to adopt new norms and institutions contributing to our understanding of state socialization. It tests contemporary arguments made by soft power advocates such as Joseph Nye who claim that cultural exchanges socialize others to American norms and ideals. And then finally, it also contributes to civil-military relations literature. But once again, it's focused at the systemic level and on transnational interactions as opposed to um, domestic interactions within any, within any particular state. And then for policy, uh, Ned LeBeau argued last week that today's most pressing challenges may be on the ideological level. And if today's challenges are more about ideas and less about material power, then we need to consider how to engage more effectively in the ideational realm and not just solely in the realm of military power or material power. Of the various strategies that the United States could pursue, uh, it is undoubtedly in the interest of the United States to be able to persuade uh, or induce fellow states as opposed to using coercive strategies, which we have a very good example of uh, going on right now that can be very costly in terms of material resources, human lives, and the stature and credibility of the United States. Uh, when we think about this dynamic uh, of socialization, I see it as a three-level process. Uh, first, through military-to-military contacts, individuals might acquire new ideas. Uh, the institutionalization of these ideas may alter the political identity of the state. And I'd like to stop here and once again emphasize what I'm talking about when I say the political identity of the state. Uh, within this study, this is conceived of in terms of the democratic authoritarian nature of the political institutions. And to characterize the political identity of states in this way, uh, as a regime type, essentially, is consistent with both Fearon and Wentz's uh, definition that, um, of type identities. Uh, and then third, the third level of this process is once institutionalized, these new ideas or the identity of the state uh, may influence both the material and ideational structure of international society. And as far as uh, U.S. national security, pulling it up into that uh, discussion, scholars of democratic peace have shown one way in which this identity-based um, political socialization of states is relevant to U.S. national security. States with a democratic political identity um, behave differently toward each other than those who uh, are not democratic. And that is to say, fellow democracy should not use military force against the United States, or should the United States have to resort to military force against its fellow democracies? Uh, and for U.S. national security, um, if we put it in that terms, in essence, a transnational liberal identity underpins uh, U.S. hegemonic dominance by constructing a benign view of U.S. Mat material uh, capabilities within liberal states. Uh, within IR literature, posited socialization mechanisms uh, are seen to have both an ideational and a material component. Uh, Eikenberry and Kupchan in 1990 identified the three mechanisms of hegemonic socialization that um, I show here. I find their study useful because I focus on the United States as a powerful or hegemonic state that attempts to use the full spectrum of strategies available to it. 
uh, to socialize fellow states uh, to a more liberal identity. Um, I focus on transnational professional and social interactions. And this is somewhat different uh, from some other studies, such as Piva House and Johnston, uh, that examine the role of international institutions as environments conducive to socialization. So while the U.S. military is often portrayed uh, in its uh, role as a coercer or providing inducement, uh, we rarely hear of its role as a normative persuader. Um, but the focus of this study is exactly on the U.S. military as a normative persuader. Uh, here I've listed my five operationalizations of U.S. military to military contacts, uh, broken down by how I think they fit into Eikenberry and Kupchan's hegemonic socialization framework. And I'm going to talk about uh, constructivist or ideational mechanisms and then uh, material mechanisms. And I think we need to uh, recognize that when I say these terms, I am talking about ideal types. Nothing is solely any one ideal type. Uh, that being said, the primary constructivist or, or ideational mechanism um, in this study is a participation in U.S. military professional education programs. Although uh, the Common Security Alliance and uh, U.S. military troop presence in a country may also have constructivist implications. Uh, incentives I see as sort of a transitional mechanism between rationalist and ideational in that um, they might be initially accepted for instrumental reasons, but over the long term, uh, new behavior might become to be viewed as legitimate and internalized within the state. Uh, for example, acquiring U.S. military equipment or U.S. military aid may be done initially for instrumental reasons, but over the long term, the acquisition may influence ideas uh, on doctrine, on operating procedures, on ways of organizing your military structure, and hence are uh, institutionalized in order to continue to receive this U.S. military aid or in order to continue to be able to purchase uh, military equipment from the United States. And then the primary uh, material instrumental mechanism is the coercive use of force, uh, either the threat or the use of force. And for the purposes of this study, I've used just that just as a control uh, as opposed to a primary factor of interest. I want to step back once again to the military education programs. And for a number of reasons I've listed here, I think these programs might be more influential than just uh, civilian students coming to university-level exchanges here in the United States. And I'll talk more about that when I talk about my ongoing uh, research. But these are purposeful socialization programs. They are specifically, uh, one of their goals is specifically to socialize the officers that come here to provide them education on uh, U.S. government, U.S. economy, um, just U.S. society, civil society in general. Uh, it's a regimented course of study. At the Air Command and Staff College, uh, students have very, very, very little choice on what they're going to take. It's a standardized course of instruction for both the U.S. and the foreign officers. Uh, so there's no uh, kind of uh, opportunity to segregate yourself by the courses you choose. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, the classrooms are fully integrated. Uh, unlike uh, civilian students who might come to the United States, um, there is no opportunity for immigration. The military officers go back to their home states. Uh, they also share a common identity as military officers, some common assumptions about what that means. And uh, research within both education, economics, and social psychology 
uh, has suggested that socialization is easier to accomplish amongst a group of individuals that do share a common identity. And then finally, the military officers do return home to what I call a non-trivial position uh, within the home country uh, political structure, once again being a function of the special selection process whereby they come to the United States um, initially any. Okay, so how might this mechanism work? How, how does participation in U.S. military uh, schools influence ideas? And once again, I see this mechanism mostly working on the states that are something less than fully democratic. And these officers from such states would be exposed both in the classroom and with colleagues and in everyday life to the role of military officers in a democratic state. They would see firsthand how civilian control of the military and a democracy functions at both the institutional or theoretical level, uh, also at the personal level, uh, at the daily interactions that they have with both U.S. Uh, civilians when they go shopping or in restaurants, as, as well as with their military colleagues. Um, in the classroom, they might see uh, that while private opinions uh, may differ widely amongst the U.S. military officers, and, and they do about uh, policies, uh, civilian policies, that nevertheless the military does what's lawfully tasked to do by its uh, civilian leaders. Uh, based on my own personal experience and those of uh, some of my friends, the foreign officers may maintain contact with uh, U.S. colleagues and also the colleagues uh, from other countries they meet in these U.S. schools uh, after returning to their home country. Uh, and over the longer term, uh, more officers return home as graduates of U.S. military schools, and they're form forming a cohort of officers who have seen how civilian control of the military functions in a democracy. And I don't think you will see that the influence uh, evidenced in any sort of spectacular form, such as uh, revolt or open support for democratic opposition, but more likely it is in less spectacular fashion, such as not taking an active role in civilian political struggles nor hindering democratic, democratic transitions. Um, military officers who have come may see that uh, military organizations in democracies maintain influence and respect, uh, ameliorating fears of lost institutional power or personal esteem, giving them less reason to help dictators stay in power. And in a similar context, Piva House, uh, his recent work has argued that through participation in alliances, uh, the military feels, might feel less materially threatened by a changeover uh, to a more democratic regime. So to summarize all of this, one of the central daily experiences from, for officers from non-democratic states in U.S. military schools is experiencing the day-to-day -day functioning of civil-military relations in a democratic state. And then I have here just uh, to show the extent of these programs. I've taken two slices in time. Um, I have to point out that Canada is a participant in these programs every single year. Uh, the color coding, for some reason, did not work for Canada on this slide. So you should consider Canada to be in one of the darker colors. The darker colors are the participants, and then the lighter colors are those who do not participate. So this is kind of the view from 1980. And then this would be the view from 2000. And once again, these are slices in time. Some of these countries come in and out of the programs. Um, 
the wealthier countries purchase attendance, so they purchase attendance in, in particular years, um, and then grants are given to certain countries in certain years. So it, it's not consistent all the way across the board that any particular country, I'm particularly pointing to the uh, Scandinavian countries, they seem to come in and out of the program, except for Norway, which is a, a consistent participator. So the methodology, uh, my master data set, covers the year 72 to 2000, observations by country year. And um, I include almost all countries with a population of 500,000 or greater as defined in the polity database. And this includes the Middle Eastern countries, and I think this is relevant because there are quite a number of democratization studies that do not include uh, the Middle Eastern uh, countries. I use Cox proportional hazard models, and these are a model taken uh, models taken uh, are frequently seen in biomedical research, and in, in that context, you would look at a, a group of patients of some sort, say cancer patients, and then you would look at the factors, their inherent characteristics, age, gender, race, and then you would also look at the externally applied therapies and to see how all these factors influence whether they live or maintain that identity or whether they fail, die, essentially in this case. For in my study, failure means transition to another identity. Uh, my key military uh, variables are each considered individually uh, within four processes that I'll talk about, and hence I have 20 models. Uh, if you had a chance to look at the paper, the models are all laid out in the paper. Today I'm not going to be going over all 20 of these models. Uh, and then... Uh, the control factors that I use are the standard factors within um, democratization studies. So to turn to type identities, how I divide these out, there are three identities that I'm looking at, and this is defined by the Polity 4 database. It's on a scale, a 21-point scale, zero being most authoritarian, 20 being most democratic. So the coherent democracies, uh, coherent authoritarian regimes, and those regimes in the middle ground. However, because we're interested in the direction of failure out of the middle ground group, we are looking at four processes. So democracies becoming more authoritarian, uh, authoritarian states becoming more liberal, and then the middle ground being able to transition or consolidate uh, the identity that they have. And I mentioned it's based on um, the Polity 4 data, and this conceptualization is consistent with um, the researchers uh, of polity who uh, identify coherent and incoherent regimes with, it, with these sorts of numbers, as well as within some other studies of democratization research. So the, there we have our four uh, identity failure processes that we use in order to examine the influence of our five variables. These are the control factors, the structural conditions shown uh, in previous research to have an effect on democratization. Uh, factors relevant to my socialization argument are the two at the bottom, U.S. economic assistance, because we could hypothesize that might have the same sort of influence that U.S. military assistance would have. And by assistance, I mean loans and grants. And then U.S. militarized action, uh, coded one if a threat a display or use of force in any given year. This is a summary of the effects, and once again, I've truncated the models, and we're just looking at the uh, key variables of interest. 
Uh, as we can see, the educational exchanges for those states who are coherent authoritarian, those that participate in the educational exchanges are significantly more likely to transition to a more liberal identity than those who do not participate. And you can see that that's sort of a cascading effect. It's the same for those in the middle ground. Those states that participate are more likely to transition uh, to democracy than are their um, fellow states who do not participate in these U.S. military educational exchanges. Uh, there's also influence for a common alliance, as, as Piva House um, has found, as well as um, U.S. military presence for coherent authoritarian <coughs> states, aiding liberalization. However, we'll note that the models do pick up authoritarian uh, trends. The presence, uh, U.S. military presence in the middle ground states that um, influence uh, was driven by one very influential outlier, and that outlier was Panama in the 1980s, where there is a large U.S. troop presence at the Panama Canal Zone while it was also undergoing um, authoritarian uh, transition. Um, so, and the significance level for this is 0 0.05. Can you explain the dependent variable? The, the, de the dependent variable in hazard models would be time. So what we're looking at is um, over time, how do all of these factors influence whether an identity or whether a group of individuals survive or um, fail? Is that? It's basically, in each country, determine whether it's become more or less democratic? Yes, yes, yes. So conclusions and implications, uh, U.S. military educational exchanges are positively associated with liberalizing trends. And besides the one negative result I had, um, we can see that there were no other um, uh, authoritarian trends identified um, by the analysis. Uh, I think also theoretically uh, we can see that identity-based identity constructive constructivist mechanisms do have observable effects, then we can think about how to measure them and how to include them in our analyses. And then for policy, ideationally based programs uh, should play an important role in U.S. national security strategies. Um, where I'm going for further study, um, ongoing, uh, what I'll be doing during my year here at Marshawn, uh, Comparing this to university-level study by foreign students in the United States, is there a comparable effect um, on uh, civilian students? And then, once again, recognizing that what I've done is just a slice of what it means to be democratic or authoritarian, mm -hmm. taking a look at the other, another avenue of that, and that is human rights adherence. Um, how does participation in U.S. military educational programs affect whether a state uh, adheres to human rights or not? And then possible avenues, um, I think it would be interesting to see if there was a comparable effect um, for the Soviet Union in its sphere of influence during the Cold War. Um, I see this as a data collection problem, taking a look at the same sorts of military engagement variables that the Soviets had, and do we see any sort of socialization influence within their sphere? Um, the second one is U.S. military personnel stationed abroad. Um, you've probably been sitting there and thinking about socialization, yes. Um, socialization is a two-way process. You're only talking about one 
of one of those avenues. So I think it would also be interesting to look at U.S. military personnel, um, particularly those that have gone to Islamic countries or to go, have gone to authoritarian countries. Has that experience in any way influenced their ideas about those states um, or about the culture within that region of the world? Um, I know from my personal experience, like I mentioned, that it did you know, alter somewhat how I think about things. Uh, I see this, once again, as a, a data collection problem. And then just overall, I'm interested in transnational military identity uh, as it relates to military strategy, as it relates to national security. And so to conclude, I think too often we seem to discount the power that ideas and human interactions might have on world events. Material consequences are more easily observed and measured. But material consequences are the result of how we have socially constructed the meaning and relevance that material objects have for us. While the United States has the capability to shape political identities, resulting in an international system consisting of more liberally governed states, a more democratic international system shapes how the United States interacts with its fellow states uh, to persuade, induce, coerce, or impose. Uh, theoretically, as well as pragmatically, constructivist mechanisms are relevant. Human interaction can change ideas, and those ideas matter in significant material ways that affect the quality of life for all of us. And that's all I have. Thank you. Alex. Alex. Yeah. Um, what makes the ideas attractive and hooks the officers? Um, supposition would be uh, life for their families, uh, materially may be seen as to be better in a democracy than in another sort of authoritarian state. Um, and when those opportunities to transition to a less authoritarian state are offered, um, the ideas that they have embedded in them, once again, I don't think that they're going to be proponents of anything, but there's a chance that they will not inhibit democratic transitions as it comes to their states. Is that what, – what would be your, well, your hypothesis? Mm-hmm. They're somehow better, and so all we have to do is expose people to them, and of course they'll see you know, the errors of their ways and how attractive ours are. Now, of course, I support those ideas, but nonetheless, there is a process that has to take place there by which they sort of 
recognize the superiority in the sense of the American model. Um, and maybe it is just material attraction and so on. But it seems like a, that's a mechanism that she got packed all the way in the story. Okay. How do they differ between the Cold War and the uh, and the current era? I think the um, the influence is most mostly seen in Latin America, where a lot of these regimes have transitioned to democracies during, during over this time frame. Um, and as those countries participate more in the exchanges, I think civilian transi civilian transitions are easier to accomplish. Is No, there is no such. Uh, that's one of the, the things that they've been trying to do in the recent years is uh, the Congress has recognized that we, we have no tracking mechanisms for the officers that have come into these programs in the United States. It's mostly anecdotal evidence as they go back out. It's a function of the U.S. embassies within these countries to be able to uh, track the officers that have gone in, to kind of keep contact with them. Some states do that. Some embassies do that better than others. And uh, they're just... One of the things that the uh, uh, recent uh, um, uh, initiatives is to try to track the officers better. Now, the Koch study that I referenced in the paper did take a look at, it went out and surveyed government officials, it went out to the embassies, and it does find a lot of anecdotal evidence that, yes, the, the ideas that these officers gained in the United States uh, were important when their countries were undergoing transitions, but that's once again anecdotal evidence uh, on particular countries. Uh, one, I don't know, maybe ironic uh, finding where you, when you start looking at the uh, university students, is that in your colleague Jumpy and Fever's surveys of the American military, they find systematically that people who serve in the military are far more liberal than those in the general population. Military-to-military contacts produce more ideas about liberalism and democracy than Europe outside and then exposure to the average university world. Yeah, I do have some initial results from that. My initial results uh, suggest that there is no influence for uh, civilian students coming to the United States. And on the slide that I talked about all the differences, there's a whole number of reasons why that could be possible. Uh, one of them is immigration. Another is uh, reading studies on Japanese and Chinese students. They tend to um, cluster in uh, groups of other foreign students, or just foreign students in general, uh, tend to cluster uh, together rather than being forcibly integrated uh, with their American colleagues. So I, I don't know if anybody has any comments on, on that. Brian. Identity. And then when we get down to the modeling, uh, 
Um, you're only really able to look at one facet. And Frick was saying, not on a micro level, but a very macro level. So in the model itself, before it's even part of your research, in the model itself, identity becomes regime type, or specifically change in regime type. And I just wondered if I uh, give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about how comfortable or uncomfortable you are with that. And then a smaller specific question, if we can hold that thought for a moment. Smaller specific question is, you talk about transitions from authoritarian to democratic, direction, mm -hmm. you have the middle ground possibilities in there. Um, but my quick glance are not exhaustive. So for example, if we thought of a country going from uh, authoritarian to democratic, uh, chances are it's likely to go through that middle ground, but there, I didn't see any possibility there of, of uh, you know, hazard rate of going from authoritarian to middle ground. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so with all the combinatorics that are logically possible, how did you come down with the particular four that you look at in the paper? I came down with the four, mostly because of the, the previous characterization of the political institutions into the coherent and incoherent regime. So it was had some um, previous basis uh, on other research that my, my research could also um, use the similar characteristics, of, uh, a similar breakdown of, it, of identity. Um, now, the transitions to, authoritarian, uh, to democracy out of authoritarian, there are not 19 such transitions where they, they, flip, they've, they do directly. Yeah, and in this, um, the way I have the models set up, um, that could be done to analyze that, but it would just be another um, five, set of, five sets of models. So it was, in some sense, simplicity here, not to be expanding to the universe of models and to be able to say something more specific, simpler, uh, as an initial cut at it. Is that? That's, that's fine with me in a second. The bigger question, let's say, how much of the whole question of identity formation or identity reformation do you feel you're tapping by just looking at the uh, change in regime type transformation? I don't think I'm en encompassing a, um, a good proportion of it. That Hence my interest in looking at the human rights adherence and eventually also, um, even beyond what I put up there, there has to be some sort of process tracing. I think that was Rick's point as, as well, to take a look and to go through, uh, follow these officers year after year after year. Now, um, now my two colleagues that were in my seminar, uh, they both went back to teach in their uh, professional military education systems. Um, one was a MiG-21 pilot. He uh, made colonel and has since gotten out of the military, and now he works for his uh, Ministry of Defense as an English translator. So that was kind of his avenue. Um, and that was in a country that was in the middle ground, um, has since become more democratic. Has he played a role in that? Um, and then my other colleague was from a West, um, Western European country um, he taught two years. He's still teaching in his military um, institute, in his education institute. Um, yeah. John? Okay, have you tried unpacking the um, Latin American area more? Uh, but I mean, at the beginning of your period, basically 1975, you've got uh, almost, there's this ethos that, that the military is the, is the nation. Over 15 years, that basically changed to 
basically are built up from the military governments. The mm -hmm. United States has been preaching democracy for about 50 years. Mm -hmm. And is there any reason why suddenly these things should change after 1975 or 76? Uh, well, I did look at the interaction effects, and I've, I've got the slide, this results up here on the board. And at least, you know, for what I can say, um, they may have been preaching democracy. I mean, that's a very, very good point. Um, these educational programs, the one that the, the variable is based on, International Military Education and Training Program, I met, um, only began in 1976. And there was previous funding of these schools under a different program. So kind of the measurement I have, and then also being able to measure the effect, uh, including a it was important to me to include a large number of countries in the study. In order to include a large number of countries, and particularly the Middle Eastern or the authoritarian countries, it was necessary to limit the time span because the further we go back from 1972, just the less data there is available. And what we end up looking at is perhaps um, European countries or, or the countries that had the data collection capabilities 100 years ago to look at all these democratization factors. Um, these are the interaction effects that I talk about in the paper. And uh, for um, the military education programs in Latin America, th there was no discernible difference between the Latin American countries during these years and the um, countries worldwide. However, for military dictatorships, there is a significant um, uh, interaction. Uh, the education programs promoted uh, or helped transition out of the most um, hardcore of authoritarian states. But once they became into the middle ground, those that participated and were military dictatorships uh, then had a greater chance, a significant chance of recidivism and going back to that uh, hardcore, more um, authoritarian nature. How do you know the causal direction is in the reverse, that as they gradually become democratic, they're more likely to join the schools rather than the other way around? Um, so, uh, The things that I controlled for in the model um, were the structural conditions that all previous research have, has identified with democratization. So the structural conditions have been controlled for. And then I think what we're left with is two hypotheses if we're going to think about being specially selected into the, the data set um, that U.S. government has private information about the likelihood of democratization. So the U.S. government selects the countries they're most likely to democratize. And um, the structural conditions would be uh, correlated with that knowledge. And then I think using the best models that come out of the democratization uh, research agenda minimizes this avenue of selection. It's not to say that it doesn't occur. Um, there's also a second avenue of selection. That would be if authoritarian governments have private information. Um, they're going to send their personnel over. They know they won't be affected by any of these uh, American ideas. Um, if that is, in fact, the case, that avenue of selection, then that would be biased against my expectation. And have you thought of extending this to some of the defense colleges or uh, universities and newly established democracies um, mm -hmm. that really all they have to rely on is the socialization process? They cannot provide the material incentives to their authoritarian neighbors, um, but yet they're still doing this quite a bit. Where this would you know, maybe limit some of the material factors that we deal with in the United States, the, the combining with the scale itself, the material and such. This strikes me that this is happening a lot mm -hmm. in many places. Is this an avenue that you're thinking of going to, or is it that, that it just
Oh no, that that that's a an interesting avenue. Yep. Um, I hadn't thought about it before, but it's a very good idea. It, it, yeah, yeah. Especially in, in Eastern Europe, it, it just there there are several that have popped up that uh, smaller European states have initially supported, but then Estonia, especially the Baltic Defense University College. Mm -hmm. uh, now what they're doing is bringing Georgians and, and Armenians and Azerbaijanis mm -hmm. uh, trying to do this where Estonia can't provide any material incentives. They're still getting, it's still being paid for by Sweden and Norway. Mm -hmm. um, so they're just hoping to socialize these, these others. I do have an anecdotal account to one of my colleagues um, who um, worked in a post-Soviet country, not Europe. And um, when the Soviets left, they left a structure. And part of that structure was the, um, the political indoctrination officer, um, whatever they were called, who, who oversaw that everyone adhered to the party line. Well, when the Soviets left and all that went away, then the Americans came in. They, had, they wanted to have some sort of democratic structure. But then what they had is a political officer making sure everybody did everything in the democratic mode. So that, yeah. <laughs> would be that the military uh, supports those authoritarian governments, the civilian dictators. And when they are socialized, and when they have the opportunity for some sort of transition in those countries, they do not actively fight against that transition. And the transition is allowed to occur without the military intervening in it. What would you? No, I, I, so you're assuming that the state, the civilian would want to transition and all that standing in the way so that's an assumption of your theory. The state, every, the state wants to to uh, transition, but the military standing in the way. So if we socialize the military, then the path is clear. Or when the other things within the path are clear, the military is not the sole obstacle to the to the transition occurring. That the military doesn't fear it's going to lose institutional power. It's going to be disbanded. It's going to be seen with, uh, negatively within society. They've seen that the military still maintains power. Still maintains. Um, personal respect within democracy. So they're not the sort, if it's going to occur, they're not standing in the way of it. Okay. Please. I guess I've got uh, two questions. One is theoretical and the other is empirical. I guess start with theoretical. How, what, what makes, how would you qualify your theory, in other words? What if there's a democratic transition but overtaken by, say, military coup and leaders or parties? Participants are, say, the former or the graduates of uh, US uh, educated program. We see many cases where that happened in the past. So then, what is the role of socialization? Because in your free process model, mm -hmm. basically, you especially could say individual acquire new ideas. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's also longer from Carmen's point. Is it really empirically true? In other words, isn't that your uh, 
is not the intentional program, but does that really intention transcend to the actual reality that you know? Do they really change? So, so you're saying if, if there is a transition and the officers do attend those schools, but they did not get new ideas from those schools. Exactly. I mean, obviously, the intention of the program is you basically invite these non-trivial officers, only obviously they will mm -hmm. become very important in their respective countries. However, we see many cases where former U.S. educated personnel in military or civil sector become very uh, anti-democratic. And obviously, obviously from Korea, and we see many military mm -hmm. officers formerly educated in the U.S. become very and very pro-military. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so, I guess you know, what's what's what? Who does really have a in here in in in, in transforming democracy? Yeah. And also, my empirical question is: What kind of uh, officers really come to the U.S. from their perspective? In other words. My hunch is, and from my personal experience from the Korean Army for two years as a soldier, mm -hmm. I guess most loyal and talented officers come and, and, and obviously participate in this educational program. But we've got to pay attention to this aspect of officers being very loyal to their respective regions. And uh, many countries are coming to the U.S. as a military officer and get this education becomes obviously medal of, medal of their honor. So then, you know, acquiring a new idea is not only wishful thinking in your very first place of level of Right. But um, it is an association that I'm measuring, so the association of participation in these programs with um, either a democratic or authoritarian transition. Now, if the ideas were associated with authoritarian transitions, the models would, would also pick that. Right. This is it. In the main, this is what you're finding. Yeah. Th thank you. Yes. Yeah. This is a general, and from a policy point of view, um, how these programs have also been used as a carrot or a stick, and I think this study answers an interesting or provides some information about that. I mean, 
if we're going to punish a country by removing this funding from them because they're, they're doing something bad with human rights or whatever, we, we can say that, you know, over the long term, the general a trend is that if you invite these countries to the United States, that over the long term, such a program is associated with liberal trends. So you, to, pick, to pick and choose states to punish them for other infractions um, by removing funding from this program or not allowing them to attend the United St schools in the United States might be detrimental. So, yeah, it's uh, – Dan? Yeah, um, I, this may be one of those questions or a series of questions that reveals either my ignorance of the, the testing procedure that you use or the fact that I read the paper a couple of days ago. We have got uh, key aspects of the model right now. But that being said, um, I'm still a little, I'm a little concerned about, but I'm a little concerned about the problem that we're now identifying. I mean, I think that overall the, the sort of general trend is uh, enlightening, particularly given the sort of standard line that we talked about about IMED, you know, our aid was not involved, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, obviously we can find uh, you know a, some correlative relationship in the hazard rate model. Uh, so in order to really know whether or not you know the sort of mechanisms that you want to get at are true, it, it strikes me that, that that I'd like to see more now more investigation because you find a correlation. The correlation is even with you know, it may be that the correlation that the variable is a proxy for something else that's hidden, right? That isn't in your control variables, uh, or you know there are a whole bunch of reasons why we might you know still think with the standard institutional controls that. We're still reflecting other things, or maybe it's just there's some additional level of covariance we don't know about. So, given all those things, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about how you how your your, your data tests specific processes that that would be crucial to understand whether the story was true, right? Rather than saying, okay, we see this effect, so let's hypothesize some of the processes. For example, um, if the primary mechanism is socialization, right? Uh, there's always the problems that people talk about, which is, okay, well, you socialize some officers, and where do they go, mm -hmm. right, when they get back? Um, if the primary mechanism is socialization of these officers, we should expect that, that variation, that there'll be, that, that there'll actually be very significant variation based on where they are, right, uh, upon return, uh, where they happen to be in terms of whether in pivotal, occupying pivotal roles and processes of coup or near coup or transition. Uh, we'd also expect there to be some sort of variation uh, based on their, their ties within the country they go to. And socialization, as you point out, is bidirectional. Mm -hmm. But it's not just bidirectional here in the United States, it's bidirectional when people go back, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there should be very complicated temporal relationships with, for example, not simply you know, how long people. And if you just sort of did a, a very basic model of socialization, right? People get socialized under intense circumstances, they go back, they're embedded in their old society, over time the socialization effect should wear off. Mm -hmm. Right, so there should be, if we just sort of took that very basic hypothesis, right, we would expect there to be temporal dimensions to the socialization effect that should be able to be picked up in the hazard rate. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Moreover, and this may actually be in your models, and I'm trying to remember what it was, but we should expect uh, contagion effects so that it shouldn't just be sort of on a year-to-year -year basis, but it should be that the country is participating over time, which should build up more and more socialized individuals, actors who are then influencing, you know, military for at home. So there should be all sorts of interesting dynamics based on, you know, sort of essentially uh, 
essentially, uh, and there should also be lag effects, right? So I'm just wondering how you pick up or think about, and there are a whole bunch of other mechanisms that you mm -hmm. might be mm -hmm. specific about individual socialization, interaction effects at home, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how you would sort of pick those up or tease them out rather than sort of saying, okay, well, we've got a correlation, so let's try to sort of come up with some of the hypotheses that might explain that correlation, how the model itself might, or the models themselves might detect those kinds of very baseline kind of expected processes or might be a test or not a test. Okay, um, the hazard model should pick up uh, uh, effects that occur over time. So that, that, that's, yeah, that's one of the things. Um, when I began this study, I did not think there was going to be an effect. So my, my um, the most surprising thing that I find in this study is that there is an effect and it is fairly robust. So as far as we can say that these programs are associated with these sorts of trends. Um, and then this is a, an initial study into this, and it is an overall um, long-term, broad view. And I think that this type of study needed to be done um, in order to be able to say, yes, we have some sort of uh, indication that these programs are effective. And then I think exactly what we need to do um, is, is a, I think, as you're suggesting, as a number of people have, is to go and to do some process tracing, to, to find where these officers have gone, to see what they're um, positions have been within their home countries and during the times that they've had, had uh, changeovers in government. So, yes. Please. Um, it sort of follows on uh, President Hill's question about um, how do we know, you know which direction the causal error is going. Mm -hmm. And in response to that question, you said, well, you know, maybe the U.S. is inviting certain countries that we think are more likely to undergo transition and things like that. I'm wondering, um, you know, this my ignorance of this uh, you know, particular area empirically, but I'm wondering to what extent countries refuse invitations that they're given. You know, to what extent do states say, no, we're not going to send our people to your school because maybe they are afraid of some sort of um, socialization process? Okay, that, that's a good question. Um, the, the way I measure this variable is there's uh, it's a dichotomous indicator to once again <coughs> to um, the need for, for future work on it. But there's two methods by which the foreign students may come to the United States. One is this IMET program that is loans and grants provided to countries who want to come who cannot afford to send their officers on their own. So essentially the poor countries that this identifies. Um, and then the other mechanism whereby um, students come to the United States is through foreign military sales. And that's all the wealthier countries, the European countries in particular, and the Middle Eastern countries such as Saudi Arabia. They purchase attendance. And, and so there's these two mechanisms going on. So it's not necessarily that the United States government invites them. That it's an open opportunity that they may participate in. Now there are a number of countries who are prohibited by law from participating. Iran being one, Syria being another, Cuba, China. So there are um, a handful of countries that are not allowed to participate. Out of those that are allowed to participate, um, what, how many don't? It, it looks like in your map that, you know, mainly the countries that didn't participate are the ones you mentioned that weren't allowed to. Is there a, <laughs> a, you know, a very small number, it sounds like, of those that don't participate who have the option? Um, at the beginning, the, ver the variable divides down into approximately 61% of the country years overall is uh, attendance at the United States. What is that saying about specific countries? I have a list of specific countries. Some of them participate all the time. 
Um, some of them participate on an irregular basis, and then, of course, some participate based on um, what government is in power at that time and whether they want to. There's also um, whether they have the ability to participate. Some of the smaller countries, there's a limited number of officers that could come to the United States. I have the English language capabilities, although we do help them with that. And so it's also limited by the, um, the, the ability of the country to spare an officer for a year. It's just uh, an indicator of whether they participate or not. The country did? The country did, yeah, in that year. And that is a limitation of the data that I use because the funding measure would provide some sort of continuous variable where we could say, um, you know, as a proportion of GDP, uh, I meant as a proportion of GDP, we could use that as a continuous variable. However, um, once again, that would be a special selection process. We'd only be looking at the very, um, the countries that couldn't afford to do it on their own. The other component of that variable is officer attendance at command and staff colleges. So there's a data set out there where the, um, the, the researchers have gone and looked at how many students are at the staff in, at war colleges. Um, those numbers tend to be 10 or under. And so if we normalize that by any sort of population, we'd be, uh, I mean, it would all be approaching zero. So hence, the, the variable itself is an indicator of whether the country participated, meaning whether it got funding in that year or whether there was an officer identified as a staff at work college. And the, having the um, IMET funding does not identify most of the, the, the very authoritarian Middle Eastern schools because they purchase attendance. Uh, and so sorry. we need some other indicator of yeah, who attends. The motivation of my question is can I mm -hmm. get through the process of by chance, one or another of those officers turns out to be their chief of staff mm -hmm. and can, can have an important influence of it. If the majority of the officers that go through the process uh, do not get into senior positions mm -hmm. within their country, I think it's unlikely there's, you know, they're necessarily going to drive policy decisions that affect the politics. And I understand the limitations of your data, necessarily, and that's the importance of tracing. Mm -hmm. If you can, to better understand. And I also appreciate the fact that if you have the correlation, not necessarily a causal relationship yeah. here. Uh, and you may not understand at this point what's driving that correlation, and that would be interesting to try to understand if you can trace those. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, my experience was that
One of the requirements of IMAP is that the, the officers themselves, whether it's institutionalized when they go back to their home country, but one of the requirements is that they teach within their own community system. And so you might hypothesize, once again, we don't know anything, you might hypothesize that they have an influence on a large number of officers. If they have discretion in what to teach. Exactly. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, you also hypothesize that if they go back into a, you know, an instructor position, mm -hmm. they may not be in a policy position. So lots of further, our questions for further study, I guess. When you were in the work college, which officers were you exposed to? Uh, well, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, uh, across the command uh, staff and War College, probably 20 different countries, uh, including uh, during a, a time when uh, we had Iranian officers attending that didn't go back home for obvious reasons. <laughs> Right at the time, so said, something happened back home <laughs> where it made them, they, they suddenly decided and were accepted to stay forever. <laughs> um, but um, actually, uh, quite, a, quite a variation, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, NATO alliance partners, of course, but also uh, uh, Central and South America. Where I would make a distinction in my personal experience anecdotally is between command staff and war college. At the war college level, we tended my interaction with officers that were already at the general officer level or close to it within their respective military. So they were already, by whatever selection process, policy positions or potentially potentially so I think it may be there may be a difference there. It may be uh, more toward the silver bullet theory where you get one that becomes their chief of staff as opposed to the numbers of it. Um, mm -hmm. it's just a supposition on my part, but uh, you know but if, if your if your data is showing a correlation my immediate question is, were you able to control out all the other stuff that could possibly have influenced that? Because it seems to me, you know, there are a lot of other potentially powerful influences on the democratization of the government in addition to the world. I have a question. studies on, on, um, on democratization in Africa that basically suggest I'm a transition government and uh, I'm actually quite scared of my military because the military is this revolutionary military that has an ethos um, they're quite prone to be and so forth so I'm actually quite glad as a, as a, as a government in transition to get this help from the outside and, and, and get people from the outside to teach my military how to behave properly 
And my question to you is whether you can actually rule this out to how you would respond to those cases. And, um, and the second is basically only a comment because we heard a lot of things about process. And obviously, I mean, if you would look into, into, into the generic mechanism that links um, what you would see as cause and effect together, then uh, you would have a very powerful, um, uh, a very powerful tool to counter that and I think one of one of one of the, the designs that he produces shimmer planets, which you have in your paper. Mm -hmm. So he basically says um, this is my statistical model, and and, uh, and this is the first cut of the whole thing. And then out of this, I look at something like four or five cases mm -hmm. that I think are critical, and uh, and then and, and and by using those actually. Socialized into democratic ideas. Uh, 
um, and this is uh, one of the explanations for uh, even the reformist movement in Iran. Somehow this was the result of the coming back of the students who had been in the States and in Europe and they had been socialized into democratic ideas. But not uh, at the military level because uh, I think that the uh, Shah's um, period shows this that this is not necessarily so. And uh, I saw that you have uh, mentioned Iran as uh, and Nicaragua as uh, two exceptional cases. Uh, but uh, somehow you can see Iran and what happened during the revolution itself, that uh, actually the change in the institutions, but the way military reacted to uh, democratic demands of the people. Before everyone gone, just now, let me call for him. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you all. You don't know, on Friday and Saturday we have a conference on Russia and uh, security issues in the post-Soviet 